Would you rather be a little richer or have a more stable financial life? A striking 92% of Americans in a recent survey chose stability, a sign of the deep undercurrent of financial insecurity running through the world's richest country. A new book by Rachel Schneider of the Center for Financial Services Innovation and Jonathan Morduck of New York University explores that insecurity in remarkable detail. Called The Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty, the book presents insights gained from tracking the financial lives of 235 low- and moderate-income households for a full year. It reveals what the authors call a shocking level of income and expense volatility, much like what's experienced in emerging markets where the Financial Diaries research method was first popularized. We discuss this research and its implications with Rachel Schneider in Next Billion's latest podcast, starting in 3, 2, 1. I just wanted to thank you uh, for, for joining us today, and uh, we, we are really uh, happy for the opportunity to discuss this, um, this interesting research that you guys have got. We've been following it from afar for a while, and uh, uh, the book coming out uh, recently has really moved things forward. So thank you again, Rachel. Oh, I'm so happy to be here and really uh, looking forward to talking. Yeah, me too. Well, let's just jump right in then. Um, I wonder if you could describe briefly the problem that motivated this research and uh, tell us how you define financial insecurity and how serious and widespread it is in the U.S. Sure. You know, it's been fun to be um, at this stage of the project where we have a book that we're talking about, included research, and it's caused all of us to think back more about what motivated the research in the first place. And we, we started thinking about this work really right after the financial crisis and in the, during the recession. And all of us who were part of the research, either we all knew about portfolios of the poor. So the City Foundation and the Ford Foundation, who funded this research, had um, paid really close attention to the international portfolio of work. And of course, Ford had sponsored that work from the beginning. And... My co-author, Jonathan Mordock, was one of the co-authors of the Portfolios of the Poor book. And we had this instinct that repeating that kind of research here in the U.S. would give us some new insight into how people were struggling. And it was this thought process was, you know, the financial crisis is shining a spotlight on the idea that people are suffering, but we don't know enough about how or why or what that looks like. And it wasn't that we wanted to do research that would be specifically around the economic crisis, but that we wanted to do research that would have a long shelf life, if you will, in terms of creating some deeper understanding about what financial insecurity looks like. And so we really wanted to be able to better define, define it, just right through the heart of your question, and understand how big of a problem it was, and not necessarily how big of a problem, because that. Diaries is, of course, a relatively small sample, but sort of the why and, and, and what it means for people day to day. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I mean, I think it's certainly timely. I mean, as we've seen, the, the uh, issue of uh, economic insecurity is, is really shaping our country. Um, I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that in particular. How, uh, what kind of impact does financial insecurity have on our social fabric in America, for lack of a better term, and how did it play into uh, the recent election, for example? Yeah, it's a good question, and of course one we've been thinking a lot about. You know, um, the idea of the American dream is just core to how we see ourselves in this country, this idea that you can, with a little bit of hard work and some luck and low and steady savings, over time, achieve mobility is really a part of how we see ourselves as a country. And um, 
yet what we saw in our research was that people's lives actually follow a far different pattern than that. So rather than being able to feel like they're in a slow and steady upward climb over time, what we saw is that people often feel really anxious and financially insecure because near-term ups and downs, near-term financial challenges are so much a part of their lives and so much a part of their mental state that it's very difficult to think and focus on long-term. And I think that's a big part of why... um, I think that's a big piece of the economic insecurity that drove the election, for example. So, you know, if you look at um, national numbers, our economy is doing great. Unemployment's low, productivity is growing, maybe not as fast as we wanted to, but it's growing. Um, the, the immediate after effects of the recession seems to have died down. And so I think plenty in the political establishment didn't realize the kind of economic anger that many people were nonetheless feeling because these big national numbers um, hide that. But when you do a deep dive like we did in the diaries where you deeply understand the financial lives of a few families and really try and um, unpack what's happening for them day to day, you see a far more insecure picture than national unemployment rates show you. And so I think that's, that's a big piece of why um, many people missed it, because you, it, you have to dig pretty deep into people's financial lives in order to understand it. Um, and I also think, you know, it drives a deep sense of unfairness. Like we, and part of that is because of what the nature of the financial insecurity looks like, which I feel like I've been sort of talking around. And what we saw in our study was many people who work full time, but nonetheless don't have steady income. And so, and I think that's what feels unfair. That's what drives anger is, you know, I'm, I'm putting the hours, but I'm not getting in return a real sense of stability and the ability to achieve the kind of life I want to achieve. Yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. And we'll talk a little bit more about, about your findings in, in detail in a second. But, but before we do, I wondered if you could um, describe briefly the, the Financial Diaries approach. Um, what is it and what makes this type of research noteworthy? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Um, so what we did is we worked with 235 families, and they were in um, really four different locations in the U.S. They were in New York. They were in California, they were in Mississippi, and they were along the Ohio-Kentucky border. And we tried to capture data about every single dollar that those families touched over the course of the year, every dollar that they earned, spent, borrowed, saved, gave away, received as a gift. And so we had field researchers in each of those locations who went and met with the families in person, it was a huge investment of time and effort by the families. And we're just incredibly lucky that so many families were willing to do this effort with us. And because we were collecting the data in person, we not only have this sort of ridiculous um, long, you know, data set over the course of a year that shows the cash moving in and out of their houses, we also have a lot of details about their lives um, that they shared with the field researchers along the way. So lots of stories. A big reason we wanted to do this research was to understand why questions. You know, financial research is really good at counting things. How much income have people earned? How much 
you know, what's the size of the typical credit card transaction versus debit card transaction? What is the total savings that people of different incomes have in their um, savings account or in their 401k? And we're really good at gathering quantitative data. It can be really hard to gather that data in a way that helps you understand why people are making the choices that they've made and why they are in the circumstances that they're in. You know, I think of it as not only do I want to know why they made this choice, but what happened two weeks ago that put them in that position. And the diaries are, are really unusual that we can start to answer some of those questions. And that was a big part of why we wanted to do this kind of research. We thought you, you have to dig that deep to understand really what's happening in people's financial lives. And it, it, it gives you a sense of, of the movement of money over time in somebody's life. And so we were able to see cash flows um, and changes over the course of the year and not just get this, the snapshot that many surveys get you. Yeah, that makes that makes sense, and it's a really interesting approach. Uh, provides a lot of a lot of detail, as you were saying. I wonder um, if you could describe for us like a typical family uh, among among the th- these uh, research subjects that you've worked with. Uh, what are the main challenges they're facing, and, and how are they uh, finding ways to cope with them? Sure, um, I'll talk about um, a family we've called Sarah and Sam Johnson. Of course, we changed everybody's names and details about them so that we can protect their anonymity. Um, but Sarah and Sam are top of mind for me a lot lately because they epitomize so many of the challenges that families are experiencing. They live in Ohio. They have, this is a second marriage for both of them. So they each have an older child from their first, you know, from earlier in their lives, and then they have a younger child together. And both Sam and Sarah work full time. And yet the income that they earn from those jobs isn't really enough to drive a middle-class lifestyle. I think that's part of what, you know, when you were asking before, what, how does the financial insecurity affect our social fabric? And I was saying, well, you know, people feel an essential unfairness. I think, if, I think people feel like if, they, if, if two people in a couple are both working full-time and they still can't really afford two cars and a house, and a secure retirement feels like something's wrong. Feels like they're not quite getting a fair deal. Um, Sam and Sarah are pretty optimistic about their lives, and and I didn't get a um, a lot of bitterness from them about it when we talked. But it, it did feel like this is harder than it should be. So they both take on additional part time work, and Sarah is really a doer. And I should point out, you know, they earn roughly the median in household income in the U.S. for a family of their size. So they're having trouble making ends meet. On, and that's because the cost of education has risen, the cost of health care has risen, and wages have not kept pace with that those increases. So that plays out really clearly for Sam and Sarah because Sarah decided to go back to college. And during the diaries year, she was not only working and raising her kids, but she was also a student. And um, she makes jokes that she's going to be paying for her student loans forever because she's going to graduate when she's 40. And she sort of says, you know, what can you do but laugh? It's, you know, if, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So let's might as well laugh. Um, and they, um, over the course of the year, um, had nine different sources of income coming into their house. So what we saw often was this picture of incredible complexity 
And this was the find, one of the findings um, from the original International um, Financial Diaries research also, was this idea that even if people don't have a lot of money, that doesn't mean they don't have complicated financial lives. So in Sam and Sarah's case, they have income from both of their primary jobs. They each have part-time jobs. They get some child support from the parents of their older children. They get a tax refund. They get the financial aid for Sarah's college. So it, it's a lot to manage just the complexity of their financial life and to know which bills they can pay when. And Sarah talks about it as a game of whack-a-mole. Like she's always behind on something, catching up on something else. She has um, a bank account, but she only wants to have a very limited number of automatic payments. Basically, they were paying $7 for Netflix a month, and they had another insurance payment that was automatic. But other than that, she really wants to know exactly what bills are being paid when, because she's always managing how much money she has for which bills. And so the, what emerges from conversations with them is just how much time and effort financial management takes for so many people. Um, and that really changes how you think about financial advice and the kinds of strategies people need to be able to adopt to get ahead. Yeah, that's right. And you, you touched on something um, that, that I'm curious about. Uh, you mentioned previous financial diaries research in, in um, emerging markets. I wonder if um, you could describe a few challenges or coping mechanisms that uh, you found are, are happening in the U.S. that are either similar or different from what's happening in these markets. Sure. And, you know, my co-author, Jonathan Mordock, would have so much to say about this also. Um, but I, But it's been fun to get to think a little bit about the, what's similar and what's different. You know, one thing that I know is the case uh, in the U.S. and in developing countries is that people rely a lot on friends and family. But that's less known about the U.S. and more counterintuitive to us. Like in the U.S., we have this mental frame that financial transactions are between an individual and an institution. And the majority of the country, you know, 93% of them, of adults in America have a bank account. So it's not that people are necessarily um, without access to formal financial services. And yet, nonetheless, like informal financial services play a really important role. So in the U.S. Financial Diaries sample, 95% of the sample had some financial engagement with a friend or a family member at some point during the year, either borrowing, lending, saving money in a group. 40% of the sample lent money to friends or family or borrowed money from friends. Oh, sorry. And, and then another 40% um, borrowed from friends and family. 20% did both. So this activity of you know, being financially intertwined with your community is very much a global. And... Um, I know in the international um, work, there's been a, a ton of investigation, not necessarily national financial diaries, but international work, understanding the financial lives of struggling households. There's been a lot of work to understand um, uh, savings groups, and we saw savings groups in the U.S. as well, and, you know, often imported by immigrants, but really... Um, an incredibly important 
way of coping with financial ups and downs and a, a way of, of putting money aside for things that are bigger investments. Great. And I mean, with all the um, informal mechanisms that people turn to in the U.S. and abroad, but I guess focusing here on the U.S., what what uh, could formal financial services providers do to uh, better address those needs and perhaps tap into to that market better? You know, I think there's a lot. To some extent, um, you could think of informal financial act services or informal finance as the focus group that tells you what formal financial providers should try and, and offer. Um, so one thing that you that I think they could learn is that um, traditional measures of creditworthiness are incomplete. So you know, people are often able to lend to friends and family members and they get paid back. And But those friends, those borrowers may not show up as creditworthy if they're assessed only by traditional credit assessment means in the U.S. Our credit scores miss a lot of activity. And they, they miss some data points that tell you that somebody could repay. Um, so I think that's, that's maybe the biggest, most important thing. I think that informal finance also gives us some insights into what, what people need from their financial services in terms of flexibility and personalization. And I do think this is the future of formal financial services. We're going to increasingly be able to use data to move away from one-size-fits-all financial services and instead design a credit product or a savings product that really meets the needs of the specific borrower, the specific saver. So what I mean by that is why... Why organize credit so that you repay it in equal installments on a monthly basis? And that's how mortgages are designed, that you would want to pay the same exact amount every month. But that assumes that you have the same amount of income every month. And, in fact, people's income often varies depending on um, how work is going, whether they work on tips or commissions, right? Many, or they simply have a variable number of hours that they work, Many people see ups and downs in their earnings. So why not offer ups and downs in how you repay debt as well? And informal borrowing often has those features. So the people in our sample who borrowed from friends or family reported that the repayment expectations were very fluid. Right? If you borrow from your cousin, your cousin knows you're going to repay, you know you're going to repay, and the expectation is you'll repay when you can, not that you'll repay along a specific schedule. And that repay when you can is a feature that I think we're going to be able to embed into formal financial services over time as well. Well, that's an interesting idea. And I, um, it touches on one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, the uh, income and expense volatility that you talk about in the research um, I wonder if you can talk about why that's such a significant challenge and why it has grown over the years. Yeah. So, you know, it was one of the big findings of our study. And what we saw, so, you know, we, had, we were gathering income flows over the course of a year, and we looked at average monthly income. And we calculated how often incomes were either 25% more or 25% less than that average. And we found that in, on average, in five months of the year, 
incomes were 25% more or less than the average, which is an extraordinary range when you think about it. And it means that in only seven months of the year were the families that we met earning their average income. And the spikes and dips in income were big. They were, on, on average, in, when income was, was more than the average, it was you know, 46% more. Hmm. Um, when it was lower, it was 52% lower. So the spikes and dips are big. Only 2% of our sample had no spikes or dips. It is the case that some people have more and some have less, like any other distribution of economic activity. And what, what's causing that is really the nature of work. 56% of Americans work on hourly jobs. And for those of us, like I've never had a job that wasn't salaried, right? I'm a typical white-collar worker. I went to college um, and then graduate school, and so all of the work I've done in my life you know, with the exception of some jobs during college as a waitress, um, have delivered steadiness, have delivered a set salary. But for many hourly workers, that's not the case at all. So you might be a full-time worker, but every week you get your schedule, and some weeks you get 36 hours, and some weeks you get 42, some weeks you um, get sick and you don't get paid sick leave, so you only work 25 and so even people who are full-time and don't work on tips or commissions, nonetheless, see real ups and downs in their earnings. And I don't, it's hard to say whether that volatility, that um, week-to-week, month-to-month volatility that, we're, that we saw in the diaries has grown because there, there haven't been other data sets like ours that we could compare to very easily. But it is the case that year-over-year volatility has definitely been increasing. So the number of people who experience a dramatic shift in how much they earn this year versus last year has grown over the last several decades. Really? And it, you know, so it seems likely that the kind of volatility that we saw w- within the year has grown, um, but it's harder to know that with as much certainty. Huh. And if, if it is indeed uh, growing year over year, what, what, do you, what could be driving it? I think you mentioned... Uh, in, in the research that the, the gig economy, as, as they describe it, might be a factor, just the general evolution of work from the stable full-time monthly paychecks you, you talked about to, to something, you know, um, more on demand? Yeah, I do think that is one of the factors, and it's one of the factors that's getting the most attention, is this idea that the gig economy is growing. Um, I think there's a danger in putting all of the explanation onto the gig economy because it's not only self-employed or contractors who are experiencing ups and downs. It's also people with jobs who are experiencing ups and downs. So a a big factor has been the shift away from manufacturing jobs, which were more likely, far more likely to be unionized, to a service economy with far fewer jobs that are unionized. And um, in the service economy, um, more people are experiencing what I described in terms of they might work full-time but nonetheless have variability in the number of hours they work. And that doesn't have to be the case. It's not intrinsic to retail and service jobs in comparison to manufacturing jobs. It's really more about the nature of um, worker power in in an environment where 
unions are simply um, wielding far less control over workers' con- working conditions. So, you know, it's now entirely possible. You know, a lot of how we thought about it in, in the book was to describe it as a shift in risk. So one of the people that we um, profiled in the book is a terrific example. He works, um, we called him Jeremy, and he works fixing long-haul trucks. And um, it was a full-time job, but the amount he got paid depended on how many trucks he worked on in a shift. And he had no control over how many trucks he worked on a shift. That was purely a result, really, in his case, of the weather. In bad, in hot weather, trucks broke down more, and in cold weather, trucks broke down more. So in the spring and fall, he made less money than he did in the winter and the summer. And what's happening here in that case is that his employer is shifting the risks of business ups and downs to the worker, who now shares in those ups and downs. And that's happened in a whole variety of industries. So uh, large retailers can use data and, and to really quickly know if they should flex the amount of staff people they need on site up and down with the number of customers in the store. One of our partic- research participants works in a fast food chain as a manager, and she talked about how there's a ratio of sales to staff people that she was supposed to monitor. And if she got without of the range she was supposed to monitor, she was supposed to stay within, if she'd hear about it from management within 24 hours. Hmm. And it was her job as manager to send people home when business was slow. And so, you know, even frontline workers at a fast food joint are sharing in the business, in the ups and downs of demand for their businesses' services. Well, I mean, that seems kind of like the dark side of our uh, technological advances that have also enabled different forms of credit scoring and, and you know, good things um, for people. But, I mean, how, how do you, t- you know, t- walk that back? I mean, that's, that's making businesses more efficient but also harming workers. I mean, is there a solution to that? And, I mean, is government uh, potentially, uh, should it be involved in that? I think government is a big part of the answer. I do see it as the dark side of productivity gains, right? So um, the company is more productive and more profitable if they're able to pass these risks on to employees. But that's not necessarily what's best for us as a society. So in one way, I really think about this, and this is going outside of the scope of what we said in the financial diaries research, is, but is is to think a lot about, to think more about what what are the stakeholders of a company and how do the different stakeholders each um, rank in terms of priority. And right now we're really in a position where companies are encouraged to think about their productivity and their competitiveness first and their returns to their shareholders rank really high. And we are in a moment when worker power and worker voice is far diminished. And so you're seeing some shifts. There are some beginnings of a movement in the other direction. Um, so, for example, in San Francisco, they've just passed a retail workers' bill of rights and started to think not only about um, increasing employment, and there is a real role for government here to think not only about 
higher employment rates, but higher rates of employment in high-quality jobs. And there's increasingly work to define what it means to have a high-quality job. It's not just a job, but a good job. Um, and in the Workers' Bill of Rights, the things that um, San Francisco focused on were about scheduling control and predictability, were about being able to get more work if you wanted it, so employers should um, offer part-time workers full-time work before hiring additional part-time workers, for example. There's also some really interesting work going on in the country around um, you know, how to empower workers to push for what they need. And you, you saw that more in the fight for 15 as people um, advocated for higher pay. And they figured out how to do that across industries and across locales. Interesting. Well, uh, shifting gears a bit, I'm, I'm sure working at mm -hmm. CFSI, uh, you've worked with a lot of innovative financial services providers uh, who are addressing the types of issues that you've studied here. I wonder if you could highlight a couple that you find particularly exciting or innovative. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of your uh, listeners who don't know who CFSI is, the Center for Financial Services Innovation's core mission is to improve the financial health of Americans. And we do that by working with providers of all types, large, small, um, credit unions, banks, regional players versus national players. And we have spent a lot of time, um, particularly in the fintech community, because we think that there's um, so much opportunity to use new technologies to better meet the financial needs of struggling families. And it, that has been really really exciting to see how so many in the uh, entrepreneurial community have embraced the financial health challenges that um, exist and are, are trying to solve them. So um, one that we, one fintech company we highlight in the book is called Even, and they, they probably, again, they're a terrific example of, of how you could use new data, new technology to solve problems differently. The way even works is they um, they monitor your paychecks, right? When you sign up with them, you link your bank account to their app. They monitor your paychecks and they pay attention. They calculate what they call the even average, so that then you know what your average paycheck is. And then when your paycheck is lower than your even average, they give you a, what they call a boost to bring you up to your average. And when your paycheck is higher than your average, they repay the boost or suggest that you save it, put it aside for the next time you're low. And it's what's interesting about it is it's not really a loan. It's not really a savings account. It's really directly focused at helping people achieve stability. And so it gets far deeper into solving a financial challenge than many financial products are able to do. Because they haven't defined the problem as, okay, we'll give you a savings account, now it's up to you, or we'll give you a checking account, now it's up to you to figure out how to budget. They really define the problem they're solving as, we're going to help you achieve stability in your earnings. And then they design their solution to get to that problem. I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of um, more direct problem solving. Huh. That is interesting. 
Well, uh, I've got one final question for you. I wonder um, if there was anything that surprised you as you got into studying this um, or any common misconceptions about low-income people in the United States that the general public should reassess based on your findings in this research. So much. You know, this is such an extraordinary um, opportunity to get to know families whose lives are, you know, we think about and talk about, but don't necessarily know intimately and certainly don't know firsthand. Um, so, you know, maybe the biggest thing is is that um, has to do with financial sophistication. And I think this came across in the international work, too, that just because people have little in terms of resources doesn't mean that they have, that they don't know how to make the most of those resources. In fact, what we saw was that lower and, and middle-income people are incredibly savvy and often more um, sophisticated about how to manage their financial lives than people with more resources, because they have to be. It's just that their knowledge base is a different set of things. So they might not know a lot about 401ks and portfolio diversification, but they know a lot about which bills to pay late and which bills to pay on time and where you can get the best deal on milk and what the, you know, um, how quickly a certain uh, payment is going to post to their account. So people are incredibly creative and resourceful about how, to make their financial lives work. And a big piece of that, to me, was is also about um, they know often how to set themselves up for success. So a lot of times we saw people doing what we thought as workarounds, like sort of some hack in the financial system to make a product work for them. So I described how even makes stability more possible because it's directly about that. But often bank accounts don't have any feature like that. But people figure out how to kind of create that for themselves. So um, one woman we got to know um, put her savings in a bank account that was, in a credit union account that was a significant drive from her house. She cut up her ATM cards and felt like now I can only get my savings when I really, really need it. And that was for her a way of, making sure that she kept her savings goals and her spending budget. Somebody else had a different strategy to accomplish the same thing, which was that whenever there was a big deal, a good deal on things she needed, she would just stock up her pantry. So she found it really hard to save in a bank account and leave the cash just sitting there, but it worked really well for her to just have far more toothpaste in the house than she needed right away. And then she could make sure her resources stretched the way she needed them. So over and over, we saw those kinds of strategies where people really know um, how to set up the limits around, and not, not only limits, how to set up the, the structures around themselves that would make them most likely to make their financial life work. Well, that is really fascinating stuff, Rachel. I want to thank you again uh, for your time today in this interview and uh, congratulate you and Jonathan Mordek on the, on the book and the research. It's a great contribution to, to uh, our understanding of these issues and uh, certainly a valuable piece of the discussion going forward. So thank you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really delighted to be able to talk about it.